welcome to the DevCom Games Industry Podcast with your host, Lars Janssen. Thank you so much for joining me today, Andy and Brian. We have already worked together in my role at Kutch Media, and I'm very happy we can bring some of your insights to our DevCom community. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourselves and your journey so far, maybe starting with Andy? Sure. Uh, well, thanks, uh, first of all, for inviting us uh, on. Um, so, yeah, my my journey um, is, is quite a sort of meandering journey, really. Um, how did I get to where we are now? Um, my my, my journey started working in the theatre many, many years ago. I was a stage manager um, and, uh, and, uh, and I had to stop working as a stage manager because I had children and needed to feed them and there was absolutely no money in the theatre. So I, I evolved into the music industry and while I was in the music industry um, working as a general manager of a record company, um, I got a phone call one day asking if I'd be interested in working with a new startup in something called video games. <laughs> so so I thought, well, it sounds like a, a good thing to do. So <clears throat> I, um, I, I, I took the job um, in this little startup and um, no idea why we were doing what we were doing, but we were doing it, setting up infrastructure all over Europe. And um, after about 18 months of really having no idea why we were doing what we were doing. We were put into a room one day and said, uh, we can now tell you why you're here and we're launching a new product uh, and it's a games console and it's going to be called PlayStation. Uh, and I actually turned to the person next to me and said, that's a terrible name, that will never work. Um, and so I, I spent many, many happy years working uh, in the games industry for PlayStation. Um, and it was there that I started to get a huge interest and develop a huge interest in, in personal development. And I started coaching and mentoring and training um, and, and got more and more involved in that. But I also did a lot of work uh, within the industry. I was on the board of Yuki for six years, um, did a lot of work around inclusion, um, encouraging you know women into the industry where there was a, a real uh, lack of uh, kind of uh, diversity uh, at that time um, and and then uh, got so involved in training and uh, and and coaching that I decided to step out as a coach and a trainer on my own and then uh, as luck would have it I met Brian and our other partner Beth and we decided to set up uh, the business we now run which is mind fitness and and here we are running running our fantastic business we love doing it great so leading over to brian i mean at some point you stepped into uh, andy's journey and became part of it so why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how it started for you yeah um so i think i think it's probably worth sharing that my first experience of learning was quite traumatic as a child. Uh, in my school, uh, we played a game where letters of the alphabet were passed around to music. And when the music stopped, if you had the letter, you had to say a word connected to the letter that you were holding in front of you. And, and at four or five years of age, that social pressure created um, a huge anxiety in me as a, as a young child. And, and so I couldn't speak. <laughs> so in fact, 
that experience where I was taken out of the class environment and made to stand in the corner and was, was treated not very well by a not very um, progressive teacher created this real um, conflict in me around learning. And it was only when I met another teacher who was progressive that took where I was at and helped me to unlock what was going on in terms of that social anxiety and that traumatic experience that I really got excited about the whole area of learning. The reason I tell you that, that quite um, detailed story is of me as a child is I never ever lost the, the passionate love for being able to look at a new area and acquire a skill and figure out what's the most effective way to acquire that skill or competency. And I took that through everything that I did in my career. Now, just again, to be as brief as possible, I also started in the theatre. Whilst Andy was backstage, I was front stage, either as a performer or as a writer or as a director. And both of us worked in the West End in London, probably not too um, many years apart from each other as well. So, um, so did you meet during that time? We didn't. We, no. probably, we probably were in the same clubs and bars and, and environments, but we never met. We, had, we found out subsequently that we had lots of friends and uh, colleagues in common, um, but we never met until many, many years later. Now, Andy has a brilliant story about PlayStation that I actually love that he shared with you. My story is not so, um, it is not so <laughs> illuminating about my perceptive skills because I was asked, do I want to get involved in the games industry in the early 90s? And the person that asked me um, was really surprised by my response because my response was, I don't think the games industry is going to go anywhere. I really don't. I don't. I can't see people um, getting massively excited about sitting alone and playing games. So that was one of my big regrets because for the last three years, I found a cultural and spiritual home with the people that I've been working with in the games industry. And I, I feel like I've had a great time in my career, but I feel like I missed an opportunity in the early 90s because I know that I would have, um, I would have really been at home. Uh, as well, you I have say. finally arrived now. I've arrived, which is, which is, which is great, <laughs> and, and it's fine to make mistakes. You know, I mean, yes. Andy made a big one with saying that PlayStation <laughs> is not a good name. I guess he was proven wrong, and now <laughs> you, you yeah. realize that the games industry is not as I, bad I, as it originally I, sounded to I, you. So. I, I also, uh, I was asked years ago whether I wanted to invest in a new show coming in. Um, it was going to be about cats, and I said, "Well, nobody's going to come and see a show about cats," uh, and of course. That was cats. So, uh, <laughs> yes. But, but here's the interesting thing, Lars. I, um, I was in New York working with a digital startup. I mean, I have worked in the, in the digital environment. I just haven't worked specifically um, developing games, but I've developed digital applications for different companies, both public and private. Um, one of the challenges I had with my global team was trying to bring all of these different competencies together in a way that was constructive and healthy. And lo and behold, Andy wrote a book with our colleague, Beth Wood, called Unlock You. And that book emerged on one of my feeds somewhere. And I looked at it and I thought, I recognize that name, Beth Wood, because I knew Beth Wood from previously. And I read the book and I thought, there's a lot of information in here that I could use and adapt 
with my own team. And so I, I, I made a priority of when I came back to the UK to connect up with Andy and connect up with Beth and see what their plans were and what their aspiration was, because I believe there was a huge application around business skills that that really married very well with the idea of mental health, emotional well-being, and business effectiveness. And that's kind of what we've built over the last three years. So these are obviously all very important uh, topics. And I think, you know, we could have entire workshops, which you actually do uh, on, on the topic. So today we're trying to scratch the surface, I think, a little bit and maybe, you know, uh, spark some additional thoughts around it and, and, you know, get people to be curious about it and, and, re and reach out further. But what, but I would like to, to start diving into the definition of mental health because, the, you know, the term often gets thrown around a little bit uh, and people talk about mental health. Uh, what they sometimes actually mean is mental ill health so can you maybe talk a bit about what your understanding is and especially about you know the differentiation between the two uh, so it's, it's, it's a really interesting question and it's probably one of the the first questions that I ask when I run courses around mental health uh, I normally say hands up in the room hands up here who has mental health and what's really fascinating is that You know, a couple of people put their hands straight up, but that other people will be tentatively looking around the room. Maybe I'll put my hand up. Some people don't put their hands up at all. And and of course, what what the confusion is that, that this conflation between mental health and mental illness and, and the and the assumption that I'm asking people in the room who here has mental illness, who has, who is mentally ill. And that's the problem. We talk about mental health. Um, and of course, we all Every one of us, every everyone on the planet has mental health, but not everyone has mental ill health. And so that's the first uh, sort of point of differentiation. Um, and, and that's that's a level, that's a kind of an immediate thing where people go, oh, oh, okay, right, so we all have mental health. Our mental health fluctuates all the time. It's it's different all the time, as does our health. You can wake up one morning with a terrible headache And you know, and that can affect our mood, and, and so our physical health and our our, men, our mental health can fluctuate. And 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 the difference between our, uh, mental health and mental ill health is that if our mental health declines and consistently stays in a place where it's having a material effect on our life and on the life of those around us, that's that point that. It, it would be a good idea that that somebody should seek some sort of support uh, because it's it it could well need some some clinical intervention so it's it's one thing obviously to recognize uh, you know what's going on with yourself and it might sometimes be challenging uh, for people but what's interesting also obviously is for others that uh, for co-workers for friends relatives families to to see the signal uh, to spot things that are that are going on that might be indicators for you know the person being in a in a bad spot and needing help um, can you talk a bit about uh, how you do this? What's what's your you know basic advice for uh, you know looking out for for signals? So most of us aren't clinically trained. Most of us aren't doctors or specialists. We're we're just you know human beings, but we all have um, an amazing ability to pick up signals from people. 
um, an, an innate sort of understanding of, of body language and signs that something may not be, be right. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for signs of change, that somebody's demeanor has changed, that there's a, there's a, there's a mood switch. Now, look, we all have moments in our lives when, you know, we wake up in the morning, you know, we're in a bad mood or something has happened and we're in a bad mood. It's a part of being human, uh, of, uh, of sort of a, 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 the emotions, the roller coaster of emotions. But this is about cons consistent change. And that's really the way to spot the signs that somebody's, you know, not communicate, communicating, normally would be communicative. Somebody who normally likes to go to a bar on a Friday night after work is consistently not doing that. They may be perfectly okay and just saving money, but it's a sign that something has changed. And it's something as simple as that, just having that hunch, that, that gut feel that something's not right and having the confidence just to start a conversation. From your point of view and based on your experience how has that become more difficult based on a global pandemic uh, that we had over the past uh, years where people were sometimes not in the same place where you were not working in the same office so it might have been harder for for others to you know spot the signs uh, what was the impact uh, um, you know from your point of view how does it make this more difficult Brian maybe you can talk to this a little bit yeah I mean the the biggest difficulty that we've been aware of is that when people are not physically together in the same way, there's a whole degradation of the feedback loop that people do not have the, the, the necessary access to really being able to understand. Just on a basic level, not everybody um, feels comfortable having their cameras on when they're working collaboratively. So if you imagine that there's times when all we have with our colleagues that we're working with is their voice and that alone is you know it's a it's a very telling instrument the voice and yet it doesn't give you the full data set to be able to kind of figure out if something is going on for somebody that may be um, causing them stress and anxiety which is out of out of the ordinary for them so that first of all was a, a really big impact for people and then of course the isolation some people welcomed the isolation and thought, this is great. I'm actually working more productively. And some people realized that they needed that social interaction in a way that they hadn't recognized before. So I think for all of us, there were different aspects that impacted us both positively and negatively, but from a mental health perspective and thinking as a person of uh, looking to be a mental health first aider, the big challenge there is, well, how do you get all of the information necessary to be able to do the thing that we talk about in our um, mental health first aid product, stepping into the brave space and making a connection with somebody where you're really saying that you're available if they want to, if they want to talk. There's often, we saw at the beginning of lockdown, there wasn't even the soft um, moments before a meeting or an after a meeting where people could get that soft interchange um, um, interaction where they could really figure out what was going on for each other. Most people in the beginning were straight into work. Um, you know, we've got an hour, let's get down to it. And so on a human level, I think the ability to build relationships, connect 
and feel the empathy with each other was was really massively impacted. Do you see differences between the games industry or, or creative industries in general and other industries? I know that you focus on the games industry um, for the most part, but uh, I can't imagine like working with uh, you know creative people, working in creative space, being used to getting together, being in the same uh, a spot when designing something, when coming up with new ideas. Uh, I mean, it's very unique, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you you know see. Uh, differences there if you see an impact um, you know of course of the uh, pandemic uh, on mental health in particular in in our industry it, it's an interesting one because um, the, the, you know our, our window on the world is through zoom windows over the last two years during covid so we've had to adapt from coming from classrooms and training rooms and lecture rooms and halls where you know you had a group of people And, and you can evaluate the, the, the attitudes and the responses of those people very, very easily. Now we've had to adapt to our Zoom environments. And what, uh, and from working in the games industry, there's, there's a real mixed message coming through because on some hand, you know, in some instances, you get people who are highly, highly attuned to their own sense of well-being, uh, their own mental health, who are very open uh, and very uh, willing and, and happy even to talk about their own lived experiences. And, and, then, and then there are other people who are less comfortable with that or, or, and, and in some cases totally uncomfortable with that. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a very big variety um, that, that we're aware of. Uh, and you always have to be aware of, you know, you can't just assume anything. When we come out of the games industry and go into other sectors, um, uh, it, it, it's probably more evident that you see less of this sort of openness. Generally, there's a more guarded uh, world that, that you, you inhabit. So when we're running open courses for people from, you know, it might be local government or you know, anything in retail, um, you, you, you tend not to get that sharing. That's something that's developing in the, in the games industry. Um, and that's, that's very apparent that, that in cultures where um, openness is encouraged, you, you get this incredible self-awareness from people who are very generous in sharing, but it is a mixed bag. Well, it's good to hear that uh, the games industry is, as always, a bit forward-thinking. <laughs> sure. Yes. So um, I want to um, talk about a topic that came up when we, you know, discussed uh, in, in the past and we, uh, you know, we're preparing for this um, episode a little bit. Um, you mentioned intersectionality in, in mental health, and I wanted to bring it up and uh, simply ask you, what does it mean to you and why is it so important to consider when we discuss mental health and mental illness? Yeah. So the, 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 the term intersectionality was first coined by um, Kimberly Crenshaw in, I think, over, over 30 years ago now. And if anybody wants to take a, a, um, a steer on a deep dive on, on the subject of intersectionality, my encouragement would be to go and Google Uh, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw and there's some videos out there you, you can see and and she will explain the whole subject way better than me but 
my perception is that we all experience the world in unique and different ways and intersectionality is where aspects of our identity are overlapping and that's where the you know the intersection think of it like a road the intersection of two or three or four or even more things meeting creates that kind of personal identity for you that is you know unique to you so for example um how i present both physically in terms of body language and orally with my voice people would say oh he's a british guy um but in actual fact my whole uh, family is irish and i was born in london to irish parents uh, all the way through the 60s and 70s and 80s and that identity if you like is really fundamental to me and who i am and yet it's not apparent on the surface you might not necessarily see it so that's one of the key areas for me where intersectionality becomes a a, a critically important thing now if we think about things like disability uh, gender um faith or absence of faith um and all of the other protected characteristics under the equal opportunities act that we all know about if we think about all of those areas specifically each of us has intersections where some of our experiences of life cross and that is really what makes the the massive difference in terms of the way people show up and react or respond to different challenges so you know the idea of group thinking um is where all of us kind of share this same cultural identity and same kind of reference point about ourselves intersectionality challenges that in a really meaningful way by saying all of us have aspects that are unique to us and when we really consider that it enables us to actually put our two ears very widely open to listen to the cues that people are giving us about their identity one of the other fundamental ideas of intersectionality is that people self identify that they are able to define themselves through those overlapping identities and that's a really powerful thing for collaboration because it means that we what we may see on the surface we allow ourselves the opportunity to hear what's going on underneath the surface for people with their identity and the way they experience the world that's my perception of it Lars and you put me on the spot there but i hope that um um i hope that does some justice to the to the uh, subject matter but again my encouragement would be go and listen to the source Kimberly Crenshaw because she's amazing brilliant woman I've actually done a bit of research before the episode oh, because, brilliant. I, because I was curious and I think you represented it really well um, oh thank you what I wanted to uh, also get, get to is a bit like the link to mental health and we talked right. about we talked a bit about you know spotting the signs so I'm curious like based on uh, you know your personal uh, traits are, are do you think that some people are you know better equipped to spot the signs to be mental health first aiders based on you know intersectionality and the theory behind it or would wow. you say this is a bit too too far-fetched no wow what a great question that is um yeah i i actually here's a really interesting thing that i'm starting to do some research on which is this idea of your 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 lived experience prepares you for certain things in a way 
that you maybe didn't realize were a gift. So sometimes the challenges that you've experienced, especially in the critical periods of zero to five, five to 13 and 13 to 25, when the brain is really um, forming itself um, most, most purposefully, if you've experienced real significant challenges in, in, in any of those periods, you do, a, most of us do a lot of work trying to recover from some of those challenges in our later life. And we might not necessarily think or believe that that uh, endurance of, of, of significant challenge presents us a significant opportunity as well on the flip side, which is, I think we have a, a greater degree of ability to develop emotional intelligence doesn't mean you'll have it as a result of enduring um, a, a hardship and, uh, and 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 significant challenges but i think you have the the raw material of being able to really grow a really um unusual emotional intelligence and empathy so i, I think your question is it's a really key one i don't I wouldn't think that being a mental health first aider is right for everybody. I think certain individuals may make way better mental health first aiders because of their lived experience than, than others. And that's, you know, that's um, as it should be. Um, and I think it's really interesting to find out for yourself by, by exploring the whole subject area. We know that mental health generally is a, is this huge taboo and, stigma around having the conversation and many of us feel that there would be a negative consequence to being uh, transparent around our own mental health challenges and so we we're not and we've got to be the change that we want to see so we have to be able to comfortably talk about the things that have been challenging in our lives and in those small conversations we already start to make the change in terms of the environment and what's acceptable to to talk and uh, and um, you know, share with each other. Uh, I'm not sure if I've answered your question fully, but you did. But it, it's it's just fascinating to hear your thoughts on uh, about this because I think it this is an entire area that uh, is probably an interesting field of research. Uh, yeah. you know, going going forward. Uh, but you like uh, the you know the final points you you made were a good segue into the next uh, area I want to cover in our wild ride through mental health today. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's uh, and that's the concept of uh, psychological or emotional safety. I mean, we're talking about being in a space that allows you to be yourself to talk about. Um, the challenges that you're facing or allow others to bring bring it up all you know the time feeling safe how do you create this space uh what are kind of requirements for that how do you maintain it and what is what are maybe toxic elements to this that you should uh, try to avoid mm -hmm. again um <laughs> great questions the the most important um data point that I think is is worth um, reiterating is that generally diversity creates more successful teams. So that's a general principle, whether that's ethnic or gender diversity or any other diversity, the evidence is that greater diversity leads to greater productivity and greater success. There's a caveat to that, which is if we have greater diversity, but we don't address the environment and the collaborative atmosphere, 
there is some evidence that suggests that actually that diversity can work against a successful outcome. So if we have a diverse team, but that diverse team doesn't feel able to share its perspective or share their perspectives, then actually it's counterproductive. So critically important in the drive towards creating greater diversity, which we all want, and we all want that, that leveling up approach to the way we collaborate and work, we also have to address the environment. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we have to become very skilled at being able to deal with what we call constructive conflict. Conflict, you know, as a, as a general, we, most of us are, are not comfortable with conflict. We don't like for people to be unhappy with us or us to be unhappy with people. So the notion of constructive conflict, I think is one that needs to be really surfaced in, in all collaborative environments. And we need to be comfortable with, you know, what constructive conflict is and, and uh, you know, and what it isn't as well. So we, you know, we know that there are times when situations spiral out of control. Well, what's happening there? And as collaborative, collaborative um, creative people, I think we need to start to, as I say, have the conversation around what does good conflict look like and what does unhealthy conflict conflict look like and and we all need to become very familiar with a kind of if you like a shared understanding of this whole subject area of what good looks like and you know what 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 not good looks like and i think the the other interesting part of this is that notion of 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 the culture within a within an organization and and Again, you know, we're really fortunate. We have this amazing window on, on the world. When, when lockdown first started, we, we used to, you know, go into uh, online courses and marvel at, um, you know, people's kitchens. And you go, oh, lovely kitchen you've got. But also you, you marvel at the different cultures within organisations, the, the comfort that people, some people have within an organisation to speak incredibly openly that you know, could, can challenge, not, you know, I don't mean people being rude uh, or discourteous, but just very open and very honest. And and it normally boiled down to that it's top down, the leadership of that organisation allowed a very open environment. And so there was there was a, a high degree of emotional intelligence, there, there was a high degree of autonomy, so people could run with ideas that the culture allowed for failure at times that as long as people learn from that failure and it was in direct contrast to some other cultures that we encountered where everybody was very measured no one wanted to speak no one wanted to be first and and often with you know very um opinionated leaders that um that like to talk about having a nice open shared environment but actually sort of tended we felt to dominate so we've had this window on the world um for the last few years of 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 being joined by a range of the uh, you know the from from sort of leadership through to right the right the way through the sort of hierarchies uh, and 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 being able to observe what good looks like and what less good looks like um and uh, and and you know part of that is that 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 um 
uh, emotional or psychological uh, safe area, that brave space that Brian was just mentioning, where people are happy to go into that and comfortable to go into that. It feels like it's top down. Speaking of top down and um, and you mentioning leadership, you were actually guessing my, my follow up question. Um, I was curious, like, how do you deal with a situation where the leadership that usually sets the stage in a way that allows for an open environment is maybe not doing it, um, expecting people to speak up, maybe talking about, uh, you know, spotting the signs of mental illness and helping each other, but they they don't stay true to it when it actually comes to, uh, you know, allowing this to happen. Um, what do you do in that case? Do people that uh, are in an environment like this but are not necessarily in a leadership role, do they have a chance uh, to change this? And what are your thoughts on, on what it would take to do it? Yeah, so it's, it's critically important that leadership are brought in to this whole discussion area of, of um, mental well-being and um you know uh, inclusive environments that are healthy if the if the senior leadership team are not fully subscribing to that as an initiative and as an operational priority i think i think there's two things that happen one everybody in the organization knows the authenticity of that intention um, and they know that in very small ways, they share insights in very small ways. And it's really interesting in an organization when that has these challenges, when new people join, how long it takes those new people to get up to speed with what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable and, and where the leadership are in terms of this whole discussion area. That's an interesting process to observe. And, you know, in my career, I've, it's been one of the things that I've, the litmus test, if you like, that I've always applied to any new organization, whether I'm working there as a consultant, an employee, a facilitator in whatever capacity. And here's my big top tip. The people in the organization that are connected with looking after people, and one of the ways that organizations look after people is how they feed them. The people that feed the people in an organization absolutely give you the inside track always because when people are turning up at the feed stations so to speak they tend to be hungry and they tend to talk off the record with those people who are working in the kind of kitchen or, or, or breakfast area and that's where you find the real truth about what's going on in an organization because that's where people are at their most um, open and, you know, they, they are very, very honest with the people who are in that kind of service role of helping to feed and supply the organization. So it's an interesting thing that we have to argue the business case. So Mind Fitness as an organization, we're very clear that there's a human mission that we're on to help people to live and work at their best, but in actual fact, that is not exclusive of helping to also drive really beneficial commercial outcomes. They're interlinked. And once we have that educational uh, discussion, we sometimes find the people that were maybe the least leaned in, in terms of senior leadership, suddenly start to um, attend because they see the commercial, uh, the commercial part of the uh, equation as well. So 
although you know it's not the right reason to want to do this work of course it isn't if i don't care how we get people to subscribe in some right. ways as long as they're subscribing yeah it's, it's it's funny you say that because i i can totally confirm this in some of the you know companies i, I worked with and, and with some of the leaders that i that i talked to in recent years you know it's take care of your people and they will take care of your business so that's a, that's that's the way i see this so if you're there for them for whatever reason you know if at some point you know it's going to have a positive impact on your business then it's better you do it because of that reason than not doing it at all um but i yeah, i would agree with you it's important that uh, you know we actually look at people first and we shouldn't need the business reason for it because to me it's it's kind of obvious that uh, you know Ooh. this is this is needed yeah right so um brian we, you have developed the what you call the respond framework at mind fitness so it would be great if you could talk a bit about this what it means and what are the individual steps to respond to mental um, health situations okay yeah so we wanted to find a really simple framework that helped people to be able to understand the steps and apply the steps. So those two things were the were the requirement. And the word respond kept coming up in all of our conversations that we needed to be responsive. We needed to actually recognize and respond. So we looked at the word and Andy and myself spent some time brainstorming um, with, with uh, you know, doing mind maps around the word respond. And we already knew what the best practice steps were in terms of helping to support somebody that was in crisis with a mental health challenge. But when we broke them down, it seemed to just, we had an eureka moment where it, everything just kind of fell into place. And we came up with the R of respond is to recognize that something is going on for somebody. It's as simple as that. Just spotting the signs and recognizing that's the R. The E is to engage that person at a time and a place that is appropriate for them, not on your timetable, but on theirs. So engage. Uh, and then the S is to support them. And the most important aspect of supporting them is supporting them in a way that empowers them and doesn't take away from what they're experiencing or, or try to fix them, but just supports them showing up and being available. The P is to provide that availability, to provide your presence and your sense of being there for the person. The, the O is to offer your again, offer your support and your guidance to help them to figure out what their next steps are going to be. And then the N is actually the next steps. So it logically goes into what is going to be their way to cope with the crisis that they're experiencing. And you help them to define those next steps. So all of this is about making sure that the person that's in crisis is being empowered to actually take charge of their own situation for themselves. The D of respond, we've gone R-E-S-P-O-N-D. Aretha Franklin would be proud. Uh, the D is, is for us to look at ourselves. And the D stands for de-stress. Because to step into what we call the brave space as a mental health first aider can really put quite a big 
cognitive load on you as an individual because you're dealing with somebody who's actually you know really challenged and that can be challenging for you so the d is about you prioritizing yourself so that you're ready in a sense to be able to be there again for either that person or maybe somebody else the first person you have to be there for is yourself and the d of respond underlines that as an approach you have talked about the engaged part of this obviously and i and i think it's one of the crucial parts in your framework or in general in, in all the steps um so to get engaged um i think is one of the i guess the hardest parts also for for people to make that move and say like i want to help this person i want to be there i want to be supportive i want to listen um would you say that um, similar maybe to physical first aid uh, it is better to do something than not to do anything at all or can you easily you know make mistakes and and that's maybe why people you know stay away from from helping even though they feel they should yeah well it, it, it is easy to make mistakes in that you know again the training that we provide help help people to to avoid the pitfalls um you know like giving advice what what you want what you want to do is you know do this you know down to the things that you know people say of well you know what have you got to be depressed about look you've got a lovely family and all these things that that would not help someone who who is struggling um so you know i think it's it's just giving people some 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 guides helping people to understand what what's really important which is to non-judgmental communication um you know we, we all have these um you know rules and our belief systems um you know we we uh, we, we we do judge that's what we are we're a whole set of um uh, ideas that we have of what is right and what is wrong and of course when you're when you're talking to somebody who may be struggling on crisis you may hear things that you know that doesn't sit too well but you can't show someone that that's that's could be a thought and so just just to explain to somebody what non-judgmental communication really is all about not uh, guiding people in the sense of giving them giving them strategies and and solutions because you can't you can't do that and just to listen just to literally listen to someone and allow that space for somebody to talk without being interrupted uh, without having a time pressure that's the really powerful thing it's it's a you know just to get that conversation going and if you can it's a it's a golden moment because many times somebody may not want to talk or they may not want to talk to us and so is there someone else that you want to talk to and that we could you know maybe get in touch with somebody on your behalf so these are the sort of questions to ask um uh, and uh, you know it it's about compassion it's about empathy it's about feeling with 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 someone rather than you know trying to sort that, that person's problems out we can't do that yeah and that's a big moment as well Lars where the majority of people have really good intentions and you know the old saying is the uh is it the path of good in what what is it the road to hell is paved with good intentions mm -hmm. right well 
you know, there is some truth in that with regards to mental health and, and looking to try and help people and support people because those good intentions mean frequently the energy is one of trying to fix people and trying to tell them what they need to do. There's, there's real significant evidence that many people that are in crisis already feel disempowered. So this is a key insight. If you provide a solution for somebody, you may be compounding that disempowerment, which actually, if you think metaphorically, it's almost like if somebody's injured their neck, the worst thing you can do is to move them. So some aspects of mental health crisis, you have to be very aware of, of what the real pitfalls can be. And disempowerment is a really big one. And we focus on that very, uh, very closely. And as soon as people start understanding that insight, they realize that maybe in the past where they've, where they've, for the right reason, done the wrong thing. And that becomes a very powerful kind of aha moment for people where they go, I get this. I'm going to be able to make a difference in a much more significant way. Yeah, I can imagine that, especially in an environment where it's about efficiency or effectiveness, that you know people tend to provide solutions when they should rather listen. And uh, you know, so I, I can I can relate to that. So, um, you talked about uh, mental health first aiders a, a couple times, uh, you know, during our uh, episode today. And uh, of course, you are training people to become mental health first aiders. Um, can you maybe describe that that journey a little bit? I mean, usually you you uh, come to a company, come to an organization, uh, and you uh, I guess give a keynote or talk a bit about mental health and to raise awareness in general. And then you might have additional uh, trainings as well. And at some point, uh, you know, you offer to um, to the people on a team to become a mental health first what what does that mean how does that look like in a nutshell that training and uh you know can everybody be that um or what are certain criteria that uh, you know people should think about yeah it's an interesting one because it, it you know being a mental health first aider doesn't suit everyone as you know being a first aider wouldn't suit anyone you know it's no good training as a as a first aider and then you know you, you sort of faint at the sight of blood it's probably you know not for you um which is why normally the approach we take with companies is to to give a talk about mental health on a very high level um and then um you know the people who have found that interesting come on to the next stage which is around a greater understanding of greater awareness and then there are people there who go wow this is really interesting i'd love to learn more and they tend to be the people who make good mental health first aiders. And being a mental health first aider um, is, is about being available, really. It's about um, uh, being um, making sure that people are aware that you are there to support um, people. Um, it's having the skills to communicate effectively and non-judgmentally. It's about um, ha having um, ha having Uh, information for people and giving people information but as I said earlier not advice but just giving people information and 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 I suppose um, helping people to uh, find a route through their through their particular challenge uh, you know the first thing is that you know recovery from mental ill health is not only possible it's likely 
Um, and this is a huge myth that once somebody has experienced poor mental health, that's it, you know, write that person off. Absolutely not. Um, and, and the, you know, mental health first aider would understand what recovery could look like, uh, the path of recovery that might, that person may, may go on, that recovery can take time. Recovery may not be returning to where that person started. It may be ending up in a, in a, in another place, which is a good place, but it's a different place. Um, to be there as a support for that person, if, should they need it and support really means being able to have open conversations and, um, an underpinning all that is an understanding of various mental health conditions, uh, not with a view to diagnosing that somebody may have that condition, but just being aware and spotting the signs. So the mental health training encompasses so many things like um, effective communication training, um, a, a understanding the conditions, um, you know, we, we go through plenty of uh, role, not role play so much as, you know, case studies where people have to apply um, the, the respond framework um, and, you know, get a chance to practice those skills with, with each other. Um, so there's a whole breadth of things uh, that a person will learn along that journey to become a mental health first aider. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a diverse set, uh, set of skills. And finally, I suppose, how do we keep well? How do we look after our own well-being? Because if we're not in a good place, we're not, you know, we're not going to be able to support others. So we, we do a lot of uh, work on giving people coping skills uh, and the ability to make sure that we give ourselves the time that we need because we tend to put ourselves at the bottom of the pile when it comes to, you know, look, looking after things right. in life. We're at the, we're at the, uh, the very last point of that. So yeah, it's a, it's a very wide uh, course covering a lot of different things. And, um, and, and I'd say if anybody fancies doing that and they, they're interested in doing it, do it, but it's not for everyone. What are the limitations uh, of a first aider? Um, how does it link to professional support? I mean, do you, you know, do you also equip first aiders with, you know, the necessary resources or the links to, you know, sending people the right way if they need additional help that they cannot provide? And how does that typically look like? Oh, that's a, no. You've done a great job on preparing these questions, Lars. These these questions are absolutely <laughs> fundamental. Um, so yes, the we point people. The, the The course we run is global, so we we do have um, knowledge of global resources, and that's an, been an interesting journey for us as well to understand where the mental health conversation is very well progressed and where it isn't well progressed, and what those individual challenges are geographically. Um, but we will do our very best to provide local links and um, steers towards the right resources based on the geography. Part of the way we empower our first aiders is to say, you now have a responsibility to also do your due diligence of going, okay, so what do I, where am I strong? Where is my knowledge good? And where do I maybe need to fill in some of the gaps that I have in terms of you know, um, forwarding or being able to direct people to agencies that are really 
constructive in terms of assisting. There's another requirement here, which is as well links into organizations, employee assistance programs. We, we do believe that there is a, a place for, you know, a link up between first aiders inside an organization being plugged into the EAP. And we also know that there are challenges that employees have around uh, accessing and making use of employee assistance programs because there's a, there's a kind of a legacy that, you know, uh, big brother is watching and if I use the EAP, everyone's going to know my business. Now that again is absolutely, you know, connected to the stigma and discrimination, which is still, you know, uh, everywhere around mental health. Um, so I, I think, I think we empower our first aiders to be really proactive about acquiring that local knowledge, but we also give them a steer. There's one other thing I think is, is interesting to think about in terms of extrapolating the mental health conversation. What we found is the people that do the training suddenly become huge advocates inside the rest of the business, not just for the benefit of the mental health training that they've had, but for the communication acceleration that all of a sudden it's starting to seep into all the other areas of collaboration because you know once you start to create an awareness of emotional intelligence compassion empathy in a very specific way breaking it down into the sub skills the overall organizational benefits just it starts to become a full virtuous circle that is this is great to hear that uh, you know you thought about all the the connections that are that are needed um, for people and I from my side can only encourage people to get involved more and uh, you know get in in touch with uh, you guys if you're interested. Uh, I think mindfitness.training is your website where people can uh, learn more uh, about uh, the services that you offer and I think you also have uh, you know links to various uh, resources to partners that you have worked with um, and and as far as I'm uh, aware you've worked with many. Uh, people in the games industry already so uh, I can only encourage our listeners to uh, get involved more and with that I want to thank you um, Brian and Andy for an amazing episode from my point of view like I said in the beginning we could we only scratched the surface uh, there's so many more things uh, that we could dive into and maybe we do a follow-up at some point uh, I think it is a very very important topic uh, it's a somewhat unusual one that we uh, normally on this um, series of podcasts don't cover because we talk about games and how we make them but uh you know more often than not i want to bring some people aspects to this and talk mm -hmm. about the people that actually create those experiences and what it means to take good care of them so thank you very much again it was a pleasure to have you here brilliant thank you yeah, thanks for thank asking us thank you for those amazing questions yeah <laughs> you're welcome thank you for listening to the devcom games industry podcast Presented by devcom.global. Produced by Sven Vossing. Executive producer, Stefan Reichart. Music by weloveindies.com. Supported by Bayer Dynamic. High quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany. <laughs>